All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow Triple Seven Radio. Jason Lindgren is with me and Wayne McCroy is with me. And we're going to have an interesting conversation about populations and where world populations are headed. And if I was to ask you, do you accept that there's 7.5 billion or some such people in the world right now? And I know the average person will answer one way or the other because of what they've heard. But you can do things like go online. There's population calculators and stuff people can use. And it's been stated many times in many convincing clips that I've seen that if you take some of the lowest birth rates ever cited and run them up through history, we end up with way too many people, even if you were to accept 7.5 billion as the benchmark. These are difficult things to get at. But what we do is we offer real data to show how long eugenics has been going on in the United States and the world. And not only that, we show actual births statistics in hour two that show what populations are likely to crash within the next three generations. So there it is, man. Let's jump in with Jason Lindgren and Wayne McCroy and talk world population. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 135. I have Jason Linger with me and Wayne McCroy is back. This will be an interesting episode because finally we are going to tackle the idea of population in this world. And I will state before we jump in, three people did research on this and the birth rate stats are going to come in the second hour. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good cold morning, Crow. And welcome, Wayne. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to have you. I know you guys are going to get snowed on. We're going to get snowed on today. I guess, uh, you know, I tried to wear shorts and flip-flops to scare off winter, but it didn't work. Anyhow, Jason, what do we have for the intro here? We're going to discuss the email we got that we did read on the live show this past week, but we want to share it with everybody. Right. This, you know, you get, I get so many emails in a week, and I saw this, and it gave me hope. Um, this is the next generation, and I will state that I was able to see some of the PowerPoint presentations that came out of this classroom. And in fact, you're looking at, you know, people are basically seniors in high school getting ready to be out in the real world, and they're applying higher-minded thinking. I was pleasantly surprised at the level of ability and thought that went in to the work that they're doing based on the podcast that Jason and I produce. So go ahead, Jason. Here's an email from a teacher of a senior grade high school class in Indonesia. Good morning, Crow Triple Seven. I have been an avid listener for over a year and wanted to share with you the impact your podcast is making on this next generation of students. I currently teach English in Indonesia, and with my grade 12 students had an assignment where they had to look at language manipulation through the media. For the assignment, they had to choose one of your podcasts which interested them. Their choices ranged from the banking system, social engineering, Luciferian myth, and so on. Their presentation had to explain the topic and then show how media shapes us into believing a false narrative and find three ways in which media promotes this false agenda. Afterward, they led a discussion of why or why not they believe the elements of the interview and how their past knowledge of the topic was shaped. This has been an eye-opening assignment for them as their research led them to many of the same conclusions you discuss. It has been eye-opening for me as I can see the critical thinking skills they develop as they break through this educational matrix. I would like to send you a copy of a student's PowerPoint to show you her higher-level thinking, but it doesn't appear I can do so in this email. Thanks again for your effort as well as Jason's and all of your guests. By the way, I freely discuss Flat Earth in my Theory of Knowledge class. Sincerely, Min On Win. 
again, I was so impressed with what I saw. Uh, definitely higher-minded thinking going on. So I would like to give a shout-out, and I hope I get the pronunciation right here, to Cheetah Hati High School in Indonesia. Cheers to all you students. Um, I'm very impressed with what I was able to see from the presentations that you put together. But go ahead, Jason. In a follow-up email from them, there are 16 students in my class. The school name is pronounced Cheetah, like the cat C-I-T-A, and Haiti, H-A-T-E-E, if anybody wants to look this up. I shared your correspondence with them this morning in class, and they are beyond excited. They asked if they can analyze another podcast. By the way, all this discussion began when I introduced to them how they had been subjugated to the Prussian education system, and when they found out how that system was designed to create factory workers and soldiers, they truly began questioning the methodology of the education system. Let me know if you are interested in making a trip out here. Maybe we can arrange for you to come as a guest speaker. I wish I could. Looks like a beautiful place. I did look up the high school online, very close to the ocean, all the things that I love. But unfortunately, um, I've got responsibilities here I can't walk from. So, men, I want to thank you again. And to all your students, cheers, man. You guys are doing a heck of a good job. All right. So, I don't think any of us did any shows this past week. I think we're ready to get into this with Wayne. So, Wayne, we're going to start off with uh, Thomas Robert Malthus. Fellow of the Royal Society, an English cleric, scholar, and economist, and he wrote in his 1798 book an essay on the principle of population. In the book, Malthus correlates that abundance of resources results in increased population growth rather than maintaining a high standard of living. He theorized that the increase in population would lead to an increase in poverty, famine, and disease and would set the precedent for later generations to adopt policies of population reduction. This is where the term Malthusian comes from. Later policymakers would formulate plans to create artificial scarcity as an answer to the problem of abundance leading to greater population and a lower standard of living. So artificial scarcity, let me count the ways, but hey, Wayne, jump in, man. This is where you're going to shine. All right. Well, you could see clearly just from this uh, little bit of information that we just presented that this is exactly where the whole population scare comes from. This is the origins of it. Uh, This guy is the one that laid out these principles that uh, later on the social controllers would utilize to try to push their agendas through. And it could be demonstrated, I think, pretty clearly that the whole farce of the population being too large for the earth to handle uh, could be demonstrated. And uh, and also, we could show just by this, by this planning from Malthus, that their answer to this problem is to create scarcity. So this whole scarcity premise is an artificial premise. And uh, that's kind of where we go from there. So uh, I think we should look at how uh, Malthus proposed that they, they do this, how they set up this whole population agenda and uh, scarcity agenda. Well, it's counterintuitive as well. You know, if there was truly a population problem and you're going to create scarcity, then immediately big problems are going to come to bear. But we've stated this a lot of times. And just as we get into the population myth, what I call the population myth idea here, we'll state a few things that are pretty obvious on the face of it. In the modern era, so many people have moved to cities. And so when you go to population centers, it has a real feel of, hey, there's too many people here. Now, when I'm in San Diego, it feels like like that all day long. There is a boatload of people jammed into that city. But 
if I am to fly from Rhode Island to San Diego, I would say almost 90% of my flight time will be over unpopulated areas. And I think people should consider what this means. But anyhow, go ahead, Jason. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but in reality, hasn't it played out that, in fact, the higher the standard of living, the fewer children the couples who are having children actually have? Uh, actually, that, that does sound correct to me, Jason. It's in that way that uh, in our modern era, the countries with the higher standard of living do tend to have less children than uh, the other, say, third world countries. And uh, this, this goes directly along with uh, what Malthus was saying. Uh, he says because of the scarcity of resources, the population grows. Like if, if there's an abundance of resources, the population will grow. But it's growing in the third world countries, not in the places where there are actually a higher standard of living because there's more population controls being implemented in these uh, higher standard of living countries. This kind of goes along with what Malthus was saying, and you could kind of see the agenda behind it. Well, I would add in the research that I did in the areas that we consider to have a higher standard of living, there was open uh, social engineering going on. And part of that started with the women's lib idea. And most people think that's a jab at the idea of women having rights, which it is not. Uh, but it is documented. Anyone can look it up that there was all kinds of social engineering that was going to affect populations. Part of it was they wanted to get women on the tax rolls. Back before women's lib, not as many women were in the workforce as men. And they surmised that if they could get more women on the tax rolls, then women would wait longer to have children up into their 30s was the goal of the time, which pretty much worked in spades. When I was young in the 60s, I forget what it was, 2.5 or 3.5 children. And if you logically think of what that means, so you have a husband and a wife and they have one child. If See, the reason I'm going down this road is because there's all these ways they try to break down population, and it gets so complex that I took it to the most basic way I could think about it. So man and a woman have one child and one child only. For that segment that we're looking at, population has been reduced by half. Replacement would be one man, one woman having two children. But to get back to the main point, back in the 70s when women's lib came to bear, all these little social programming agendas were put in place to try to push women into the workforce, onto the tax rolls, with the end goal being have them don't start having children till you're in your 30s, which was historically, in some accounts, childbearing was begun in the early 20s. So there's all that, man. All right, so the Malthusian theory of population. Malthus proposed two checks on population, positive and preventative. Positive checks are natural forces that correct imbalances between food supply and population growth, such as natural disasters and man-made actions, such as wars and famines. Preventative checks... Malthus suggested using preventative measures to control population growth, such as family planning, late marriages, and celibacy. And with this, the social engineering agenda was born. All right. Well, you could clearly see it laid down in Malthus's writings that uh, this, this was uh, the whole goal from the get-go. And uh, this, this really, really lays the groundwork for the, the future controllers to go ahead and put these 
uh, things into practice. And we'll look later at specific documents and things here that actually it spell it spells it out in no uncertain terms that this this is what they're doing and this is what they have planned for a long time. And they've actually succeeded somewhat in doing so. And I think uh, you know the reducing population numbers in uh, what we would consider our first world countries are absolute proof of that. Right. When we get into the second hour, we are going to state flat out that there are certain races uh, that will probably begin to near extinction in the year 2100. But I've got to ask, Wayne, the Malthusian writings and, and you know, the, just the existence of this, what period of time did these come to be? Uh, Malthus wrote this in 1798. So you're talking just right around the turn of the century of uh, 1800. So that smacks of agenda because all the way back then, how could it be the population was ever going to be any kind of a problem so far back, I would ask? Precisely. And that's the thing. That's why you could see that this is an engineered uh, agenda from the very get-go here. Couldn't have been a population problem at that point. Can you tie Malthus to any of the circles we typically do? Are these known things? Absolutely. He was a roller and a shaker. He was a fellow of the Royal Society. It's the same thing all the way on down through the generations. You see these uh, big money families. They all come together at different universities and different societies like uh, the Royal Society, which there's an interesting uh, thing for anybody who's interested in researching it there. If you go look at that, you could look at some of the names on down through history that were members of the Royal Society and just what kind of a role they played in the whole social engineering campaign that's been going on. So, uh, yeah, it could be showed that he he was definitely a roller and a shaker. Uh, he had an awful lot of different uh, meritorious degrees and everything attributed to him. So uh, from there, you could see this guy, he, he kind of laid out in his paper the whole population agenda. Well, I guess we could say in the modern era, same as it ever was, same as it ever was. Anyhow, Jason? Well, it also shows you how much of a long game they play. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's that's the one thing that always gets people hung up. So, you know, what did you say, 1700s or something like that? Um, so they put this this thing, this theory, this idea uh, about population in play all the way back then. Why did people follow through all the way up to the modern age? You know, it's the same question over and over. Um, clearly, there is an agenda that has the agreement of not just many people, but generations that will do whatever they need to do to see it through. The Industrial Revolution creates abundance and population growth. Scientific discoveries and academic pursuits lead up to the idea of eugenics as a way to control population and to read out undesirables from society. Okay, come the Industrial Revolution, you're talking, this is... Uh the time frame that starts uh, generally it's regarded as starting late 1700s uh, right on through the 1800s and up into the modern era so uh, the industrial revolution uh, this is when more people uh, went from like a, an agricultural society to more of a city lifestyle type of society with factories and uh, just you know all the uh, new industries that were springing up all over the place so people uh, tended to more centrally locate into cities from what they used to do mostly farming. So uh, it's it's a whole shift in, in the way society operates. So with this happening, uh, a lot of scientific discoveries and academic pursuits were, uh, were looked at because all these people lived centrally in the cities and they were looking at uh, doing advances in uh, mechanical things and just trying to make life easier for people through industry, as it were. So uh, with that came a lot of prosperity. 
and with this prosperity, the uh, the growth of the uh, the population came about. But what you have to understand is this uh, population growth happened mostly in the industrial centers and cities. So it's not really an across-the-board kind of population growth as uh, the controllers would want you to believe. Well, there's there's another side effect of the Industrial Revolution um, that often gets overlooked for the first time or one of the first times in history that we're aware of. Uh, certain individuals that we now call robber barons are going to become rich to an extreme uh, that was maybe never dreamed of outside of royal houses or world rulers, something on that level. All of a sudden, these people involved in industry were going to get wealthy on a level that could take people that probably were not from bloodlines and put them on a par with people who were. Um, and much of that is you could integrate that story all day long with the forming of the United States. Absolutely. That's all came about like in the same relative time frame. So, uh, I mean, you could see the social controls going into a place even way back then. Uh, when you consider a lot of these uh, wealthy entrepreneurs back then, were uh, they were trying to uh, kind of usurp the, the control of royalty. And uh, what wound up eventually happening, though, is royalty get caught on to this and they all kind of intermarried with these families and stuff like that. So it, they kind of took control back of this whole this whole kind of thing. Because initially, uh, a lot of the founding fathers of, of this nation had actually intended to try and break away from British control, but it never seemed to come about that way. Well, what's funny is you can find accounts where uh, there were certain levels of high society in Britain where they were having trouble maintaining their big residences, so they were trying to marry their daughters off to these, what they considered to be low-born Americans who were so filthy rich. Um, and over time, the kind of stigma of that, I guess, washed off. Point is, exactly what you just said, this is where we see people who manage to get rich to a level that's obscene start to integrate with the, the former rulers of everything, which were mostly bloodlines. Right, and that's where the uh, bloodlines began to uh, kind of intermarry and intermingle. So now, when you had uh, what you would call these low-born people who had this great deal of wealth, if you have, like, say, the, the royals from another uh, nation or something intermarrying with them, well, that that's, tends to uh, bring on the continuation of the royal bloodline. So they kind of integrated these wealthy robber barons into their royal bloodline, and that continues today. Right. Um, there's a history. I mean, I live right here in Rhode Island where all the kind of royalty of the United States lived in Newport, Rhode Island in these obscene mansions. Um, they're just ridiculously opulent. And that is proof positive of what you're pointing at. But anyhow, Jason, let's talk about Eugene. Isn't it ironic, by the way, that the robber baron families always seem to have an awful lot of children? Yeah. Yeah, that seems kind of uh, contradictory to what they want for the rest of the population, doesn't it? It does. And what is it that they came up with for us? They came up with eugenics. And it means well-born. It was a term coined by Sir Francis Galton, who was a cousin of Charles Darwin, in the year 1883. The concept is derived from the works of Plato, suggesting the application of principles of selective breeding. Okay, Sir Francis Galton. This is another fellow of the Royal Society, so you could see the continuation of the work from Malthus on down through. And let's just take a look at uh, at some of these guys' uh, statistics here, just just to see the mind screw that's kind of in place. Let's look at uh, his birth date, Sir Francis Galton. He was born February sixteenth, eighteen twenty-two, and you could count the ways with that. 
And then uh, his death date, January 17th, 1911, at the huh. age of 88. Man, man, it never it never ends. But, you know, I'll, before I give it back to you, Wayne, I'll just point out, um, Jason and I have done work in the past showing that Darwin is nonsense or that we don't accept Darwin anyhow. Um, but this guy is what, a, a cousin or something like this? So here we have one guy um, telling us all that we came from monkeys and then this other guy is involved in eugenics, which basically means well-born. I mean, uh, you, you can't make this circus up. No, you sure can't. And that's the, the whole thing in a nutshell right there. You could clearly see... Uh, how the agenda is just pushed down uh, through these specific uh, family lines and stuff like that, right on down through the ages. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more about uh, Sir Francis Galton. Uh, this gentleman, he also studied what's called psychometrics and differential psychology. And this guy actually developed and devised a method for classifying fingerprints. So this guy could be actually considered the father of modern biometrics. And that should be very telling in and of itself that the biometrics uh, thing came directly out of this eugenics program. Wow, that is telling. In 1844, he became a Freemason of the Scientific Lodge held at the Red Lion Inn in Cambridge. That's an interesting thing right there, too. So you could see that, once again, uh, a lot of these same groups are, are heavily involved in this agenda. Uh, once again, the Freemasonic Lodge being used as uh, kind of a springboard for a lot of these ideas. Uh, not to not to uh, self-aggrandize here, but the next episode will be, which actually just went live this morning, is all about the Sky Clock, or the previous episode for people hearing this, um, and the Red Lion, and just the fact that he's into the scientific branch of Freemasonry is going to relate directly to that, as we have pointed out in so many episodes. Interesting crossover link, isn't it? It's amazing how all these things kind of work together, and you could definitely see uh, the shifting of the Overton window in a lot of these things, how they keep pushing these ideas forward, just little increments at a time. And uh, this guy was heavily involved in pushing eugenics. He's the one that kind of rolled out the whole term eugenics and started the whole movement. And he did this in his book called Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development in 1883. So uh, from there, uh, this is where eugenics got its push and a lot more people started latching onto this idea. Well, what's astounding about this to the modern ear is the idea of eugenics is beyond the pale, but as you're pointing out here, it comes from a time when there's still pretty much an open caste system where your betters are always running thing, but um, we're here to tell you that these ideas never let up. They traveled all the way through time to where we stand right now. Right, and we'll demonstrate that more thoroughly later on. It might be kind of a quiet thing going on in the background at this point, but uh, this stuff's definitely still going on. You could definitely still see the hallmarks of a eugenics agenda in place in our society today. Well, anyone who doubts it can simply go look at uh, family statistics from maybe um, the 30s and 40s and 50s, uh, at what age women began to have children and create a family, and how much that shifted after the onset of women's lib and other things in the 70s, um, again, uh, appeared to be one thing, but there was all these other things buried in it with so much of social agending, agendas um, or social engineering. This is the way of things. You know, this whole agenda that starts coming about in the 1800s, I just kind of pictured these guys sitting around a gentleman's club, as they were called, with big cigars and glasses of brandy and just coming up with all this stuff, discussing it back and forth throughout the decades until 
we get to where we're at now, where so much of the stuff has been implemented, and most people have no freaking clue whatsoever just how all this went down. Well, most people are sitting here thinking that in another you know, 50 years, the population of this world is going to be so extreme that we will be having water wars and all these other things. And although we can't cover in hour one what we'd like to, we're going to show flat out that the majority of white races, the majority of Asian races are headed for extinction unless birth rate changes drastically. As a matter of fact, there are shows on television right now on some of the PBS channels, things like Journeys in Japan. Anyone who's paid attention to that uh, show on television will see over and over and over they go to a historic place in Japan and it's stated openly there's no children here anymore the population has crashed all these places are abandoned and we're going to give the stats and and a more realistic picture of what's going on here and I think it's critical to bear in mind that there has been an underlying idea that there will be wars over water at some point on the horizon. And so when you couple it with the research that we've done here, um, again, this is manufactured scarcity. And I would further point out that the alchemical idea or the older natural science ideas of this place is that all the resources that have ever been here have always been here and will always be here in this closed system, changing from one thing into another into another. So if you logically break down, how could it be that suddenly we don't have enough water? I think you begin to put together a more accurate picture here. It's that these companies are doing what they can. Nestle is a great example of this to get their hands on the open water supplies so that it can be further controlled. That's the issue. It's not that the water isn't available. It's that they are doing what they can to make sure that it's doled out as they see fit. Hollywood has made fun plenty of times um, in a period show that might be taking place in the 60s or the 70s that the idea that someone could bottle and sell water is simply ridiculous because water is free to everyone. Yet look where we are now. Uh, you could uh, actually look and see the uh, bottled water industry is a multi-billion dollar in a year industry. Uh, that in and of itself is very telling. So when you're uh, having like uh, uh, one company or something in particular controlling water supplies, it does create this artificial scarcity, and that should be very telling. And I would also like to point out that uh, another uh, thing leading to this artificial scarcity of water is uh, gross pollution from a lot of these industries, especially uh, like a lot of these major uh, manufacturing industries. Right. And they always put the onus on the population at large. You know, all your cars are creating all this pollution. All you people living this overpopulated world are creating all these water pollution problems. The truth is, is that the majority of any major pollution comes from industry. Industry is owned by the wealthiest among us in this world. And it's another backwards narrative, isn't it? Um, if you were to even simply look at air quality, uh, what choice do people have but to drive vehicles? So really, it's industry that has the power to change whether or not we're all burning gas in a car or not, where pretty much the average person has no say in it whatsoever. If they want to be able to get to work, they have to buy a car. The car they can buy, for the most part, is going to burn gas and then do whatever gas does when you burn it. Right. And as an added side note to that, uh, a lot of these uh, industrial waste products, uh, one big one being fluoride, are then purposely added to the water supply, supposedly to uh, better your health. 
And that, again, shows the control over the things that are a necessity to human life. Somebody controls the water in this country, anyhow, to a degree where they can simply put any additive they want in it. Um, I remember when they added fluoride in San Diego, uh, they had a guy come on the morning they were going to do it, and he touted all the benefits of fluoride in your water. The guy who opposed it got, I think, about two minutes, and they cut him off and said, by the way, this is happening. It's happening today. Um, there was never any meaningful input from anyone who opposed the idea that fluoride would be put in the water in San Diego, as far as I can tell. Right. And you could see something similar going on today with 5G. Uh, you have these town hall meetings and stuff all over the place where uh, people are bringing forward information about this 5G network going in and stuff, and the town councils isn't even hearing them out. They're just pushing it through because there's a lot of money involved for it. I'm actually getting a lot of emails that show people are pushing hard against 5G. I even can point people at the forum on Crow 777 Radio for members where there have been some wins recently with 5G. But uh, it was maybe two weeks ago I got an email that showed, I forget what it was, I think it was Germany from the 60s or 50s where they had pointed flat out that millimeter waves were hazardous to life. Um, it, it goes on and on and on. 5G will be an interesting to watch because so many more people are very concerned about it. So it will be interesting to see what happens. Um, it's a hell of a thing, man. This is a different age. If people want to fight back, the tools do exist to at least get the message out way more so than it would have been decades ago. Well, it'll, it, in the age we currently find ourselves, I think it's going to be interesting to see that if it's clear the majority of people do not want a thing, do they still try to jam it down the pipe? And we've seen them jam plenty of things down the pipe. But I think 5G is a good indicator, as there are so many people who have done their research who understand flat out this is a terrible, terrible idea. So, I mean, we're going to get a front row seat to it, aren't we? Unfortunately, yes, we are. And it just goes to show that they're going ahead and pushing forward the agenda, whether the people want it or not. So uh, as a population, I think we need to start standing up and making these people accountable for the things that they're doing. Yeah, it, it would be a drastic change in a lot of ways because the smart meter thing was this. And while there are a few places scattered here and there um, that went to court and beat out smart meters, uh, for the most part, we got those things. And so here we are watching 5G come rolling down the pipe at us. So moving on here, British and American academia began serious study of eugenics for the purpose of bettering public health. Charles Davenport and Harry Laughlin are two important early proponents of eugenics in America. Charles Davenport founded the Eugenics Record Office at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory on Long Island in 1911. Carnegie, Rockefeller, Kellogg, and Harriman are major financial contributors to the eugenics record office and the eugenics movement in general. The record office collected a mass of family pedigrees to be able to separate the fit from the unfit, or to separate the elite as they sought from the common people. It doesn't spell it out in so much of the historical record of this eugenics record office, but if you learn to read between the lines, you know that's what's going on. You know as well as I do, these people are obsessed with family bloodlines. So that's what they're looking for. They're looking for these well-born families that they want to promote the growth of 
and they're looking to see these other what they would consider common families that they're looking to try to uh, eliminate those bloodlines or reduce those bloodlines. And another interesting side note we could take from this last bullet point here is uh, the uh, the people that uh, largely funded this whole eugenics thing. You got your regulars like your Rockefellers, your Carnegies, your Harrimans, and also another big family that you see there, Kellogg. So next time you're eating your breakfast cereal that's laced with glyphosate, remember that the Kellogg family has a lot of say in what's going on. Well, it shows what we were talking about earlier, right? These are the names of the people that we assume got filthy rich to an obscene level during the Industrial Revolution and then intermarried with the, I don't know what you'd call them, the royal, the special, the blue bloodlines of Europe. So the question, I guess, could be asked, is there anything special in the European monarchy's idea about a bloodline called Carnegie, Rockefeller, or Kellogg, or is it the fact that they intermarried? I mean, it becomes a tangled web at some point, but on the face of it, it shows the kind of illogical nature. In other words, we've got money and you don't, so we're desirable and you're not, kind of. Yeah, that's kind of the whole uh, attitude that you kind of get from uh, a lot of these people in charge. They kind of look down their nose on the mass of humanity at, at large. As a result of the eugenic studies, sterilization laws are put into effect in 30 United States states by 1931. These laws resulted in the forced sterilization of over 64,000 people in the U.S. At first, the laws targeted the disabled, but soon expanded to include the poor and the criminals. Right. You could see the direction that this is going. Uh, if they could label somebody as being unfit to reproduce based upon, say, a past family member's criminal activity or something along those lines, that's a degree of totalitarianism and, and tyranny that just should not exist in any free society. So uh, this, is, this is something that was going on heavily in the early 1900s, this whole eugenics thing. And it was largely supported by the public. And that's the kind of the scary part of it. I don't think they really truly realized what was going on or how their own personal freedoms would be put at stake along with this whole thing. Well, it goes to show how easily people can be convinced that it's us and them. And as long as it's not happening to you, it's okay. But I would further point out, Jason, do you remember when we got the Census Bureau? Was it like 1918 or something like that at the point where people stopped registering live birth in the family Bible and uh, the powers that be started registering live birth? It was like 1918 or something, wasn't it? It was in that ballpark. It was a slow changeover over the course of several decades. Really, the 30s onward is when you really see the full changeover. So you can see as each brick gets put in the wall, um, it's just about control. And you can absolutely surmise that the idea of the Census Bureau plays exactly into an idea like eugenics, because everybody, every family is supposed to be registered. The American Breeders Association is founded in 1906 under the direction of Charles Davenport. The ABA begins pushing for government intervention in attempts to promote the health of future citizens. The Immigration Restriction League, founded in 1894 by the same folks who started the ABA and the Eugenics Record Office, passed the Immigration Act of 1924, allowing eugenicists, for the first time, to have an important role in deciding what immigrants were allowed in to strengthen racial stock. So I'm going to let you grab this here in a second, Wayne, but if we think of all the little movies we've seen about people coming in there at the Statue of Liberty immigrating, uh, what we actually know is that 
mostly major races were allowed. Italian races, Irish races, Jewish races. There are a handful of them that made up huge sectors of the early 1900 society in this country. Right. And to further back up what you're saying, I mean, you could still see that alive and well today in New York City. If you go look around New York City, it has always had these different uh, sections where where these different uh, nationality immigrants settled. And it, it's still kind of the same kind of thing today. You have different uh, areas like this. This area is heavily Italian. This area is heavily Irish. This area is heavily Polish, that kind of thing. And uh, that just goes to show how exactly this all was coming about in the early 1900s uh, when they were deciding who and what races of people or nationalities were allowed to immigrate into the United States. So it just goes to show that these people kind of had a racist attitude about things, whether they want to call it that or not. Well, they they did. And actually, some of the reflection we see from Hollywood were the idea that Italians were mobsters and they did all these things. Um, In many of the movies, you'll see the Irish population is running the police departments. I recently saw a documentary on some of the stone quarries that began in the state that I'm in, Rhode Island, and it was a similar thing. They brought in stone carvers from Europe, which are almost all Italian. The people who actually cut the slabs of stone for the Italian carvers to carve were almost wholly Irish. And these lines and these divisions happen over and over and over. Whether you're looking at history, Hollywood, or anywhere else in our country, you can see, um, if you draw the lines, what the approved racial stock was. Right. And I would like to add that uh, this whole immigration thing is still an issue today. If you look at what's going on right now with this whole uh, mass exodus of these people from parts of South America that are supposedly uh, walking to the the U.S. border, uh, you've got this kind of thing still going on. So it's like the media is trying to play this up as a racial profiling thing. And uh, you you can see how it just goes round and round and round. They want to keep us divided on racial issues, any lines that they can. They want to keep us in separate little boxes so that we're easier to control. Well, maybe we'll live long enough to live in a generation that understands that if the media opens their mouth, it is for an agenda. And at the point where any significant number of people finally catch on to this truth, the idea that all this fear porn is realized into society may see a reduction. We can only hope. Let's not forget that all of this plays into the human notion of tribalism, which is the probably one of the easiest things that the controllers have to play on because it's just a normal art of being human. You know, you can almost take it back to the roots of school for everybody in the Western world where science never really views everything as a whole. It's always parts and pieces. And then it gets very complex when science is involved. If you go back to the older ideas, um, everything is related and connected to everything else. And if people got back to these more helpful ways of thinking, it would be much more difficult for someone to convince you the us and them idea, where it's not happening to you, so you should be okay with it, because it's happening to them. At some point, As a civilization, we should grow up to understand that if it's happening to them, in fact, it is happening to us. It's just not easy to pull the details away from it as it goes down. The big thing people don't realize is that even if you have some money, you're still not in the big club. There are very few people in the big club. For instance, do you think someone who's upper middle class got the note not to go to the Twin Towers on September 11th, 2001? I don't think anyone who was outside the circle, that tight, little bitty inner circle, got warned of anything. 
Well, it's an interesting idea, Jason. I've often thought about this. Um, if you imagine that the idea of the American dream, or at least the old idea of the American dream was that if you worked hard enough and you did all this, that, and the other thing, you could become a millionaire, a multimillionaire. And I would ask the question now, was that ever really the case? To become extremely wealthy, do you have to be approved by the powers that be? Um, I don't think there's any easy way to demonstrate that. But I think the question needs to be asked. I mean, is it possible? possible that people become millionaires, but if you were ever going to become a billionaire, you'd have to be approved into the club. I know the Simpsons made fun of it at one point where Mr. Burns lost a dollar or something and he quit being a billionaire and became a millionaire and they picked him up and threw him over the fence to be with those poor millionaires. I think if you're really into a business that matters and you're really racking up the dough, you probably start getting watched and eventually approached, I would think. Because how many businesses are really ever going to get to the point where they're making billions of dollars for one person or a small group of people? Well, for some reason, all the businesses that end up mattering get bought out. YouTube's a prime example, right? Uh, what was it, 2006? I'm just guessing. I think that's in the neighborhood. Uh, it was bought at the time for an astounding number. I think it was like a billion six or a billion three. Um, how did anyone know? How did anyone know to buy that? And there are plenty of examples from PayPal to eBay to Amazon to any of these things. It just seems like the, the industries that spring up that are end up mattering are either owned by people that are in like Flynn or they're bought up by people that are in like Flynn. Um, and again, these are very difficult things to demonstrate on a approvable level of any kind. Well, I think what you just nailed there was people do come up with innovative ideas but they're not going to be allowed to have independent control over them. If it's something that is truly new and unique and going in the direction that technology is going, whomever is going to swoop in and do what they need to do to take control of that particular set. Well, I think YouTube, anyone who wants to look at the, the history of YouTube is a prime example. So at the time that it was bought for a billion, whatever it was, a billion six, I'm just guessing it was over a billion dollars, I'm reasonably sure. There was no profit really there. And yet one of the largest buyouts at the time was occurring because clearly someone could see what was coming down the line. I don't know how many years it took before ad revenue and all these other things came into the picture where they began to see a profit, but at the time, what it meant was you were going to be running servers for a worldwide population to upload video, and even to this day, if I want to upload video to my own server, I can't cover the cost. So you can see the kind of nature of what's gone on, and this is replicatable over so many of the big, particularly tech industries, that we see in the modern era. All right, moving forward. Because class status designated some more fit than others, eugenicists treated upper and lower class women differently. Upper and middle class women were encouraged to bear more children and become more family-minded to better the race. Since poverty was associated with prostitution and mental idiocy, lower-class women were the first to be deemed unfit and promiscuous and forced to be sterilized by compulsory sterilization laws. Clearly see uh, this whole eugenics thing uh, began moving forward. Now, most of this took place in the early part of uh, the 1900s, right on up until uh, World War II. So uh, this is what was going on. It's largely undiscussed at this point. It's kind of uh, taken the back burner in the history books. Like they don't tend to teach people these things, but this stuff was what was going on. 
Wayne, do you feel like this was done openly at the time, even though we've kind of, you know, it's it's been brushed under the rug at this point for the modern era at the time? Was this an openly shown thing? Yeah, this was uh, in the early part of the, the 1900s, an openly shown thing. And a lot of uh, the public, actually, the, the higher the more higher educated public were on board for this kind of thing. It was a, a different kind of society back then. They thought that this was in the best interests of science and advancement. And they could see like how, how this uh, was actually a thing. They thought this was the way to go forward. But uh, after the uh, atrocities of World War II, eugenics kind of, that's when it really got the, the bad rap that it has. Oh, good point, because then there was other programming that was going to take front and center where it made things like this. You couldn't do them in the open, right? Because they were pointing at basically uh, a huge eugenics idea that had happened in Germany. Uh, I take I take umbrage all day long with the historical accounts of that, but we'll leave it lay for now. It's interesting to note that even to this day, as you guys are just getting on, the history of eugenics in America, which really spearheaded a lot of this stuff, it's pretty much never mentioned ever in any circles except for the kind of things that we're doing right now. Right. And that's that's the other thing that people don't realize as well is there's a lot of different movements and stuff that came about directly from the eugenics movement. The feminist movement being one of those things. Another one is environmentalism. And uh, I could encourage anybody to go uh, look up. There's there's a paper that I found. It's it's an academic paper. I think it was written in 2013. I can't remember the author's name, but uh, the title of this paper was called Culling the Herd. It equates how the eugenics movement directly correlates to the, the rise of the environmentalist movement between 1900 and 1940. So there's an interesting crossover there, too. So you could see what this whole environmentalist movement, uh, how it's kind of uh, just something that came about from eugenics as well. So you could see how this has been co-opted as well. Well, in, in the episodes we did that covered Tavistock, uh, there was a direct line drawn to the environmental movement, and it was basically shocking, uh, the research that I did around that. And it's not really arguable. Uh, it's been claimed openly, but that's, you know, I, I've mentioned women's lib a couple of times here. That, that's the feminist movement. And so, so many, it's a, such a hot trigger word. People think you're downing either being male or being female. That's not the point here. The point is, is that the powers that be put these things in place to have all these outcomes. And we've lived long enough from the inception of things like feminism and women's lib that we can see what they wrote at the time has actually come to pass. Um, and anyone who doesn't believe it, go look at, at what age in the United States the average family starts making a family now. And it is years older than it was at one point where I think it was cited that 24 years was the average age for families to start being put together. It's worked in spades and it's documented. All right. So let's make it really clear if you're not familiar with eugenics, especially when it comes to the United States. Laws were on the books for a long time, the first half of the 20th century predominantly, here in the United States, that actually set the example for other countries in regards to eugenics and sterilization laws. It is clearly stated that Adolf Hitler got his ideas from the United States. And... The first one is in 1907, influenced by the building eugenics movement. Indiana becomes the first state in the United States to adopt a law authorizing the sterilization of institutionalized persons thought to be unfit to reproduce. 
Governor J. Frank Hanley signed the law, but Hanley's successor, thankfully, Governor Thomas R. Marshall, blocked its use. So this guy had a little more sense, at least. In 1921, the Indiana Supreme Court found the law unconstitutional, but other laws got put into place later as well. So it went back and forth. So obviously some people had more morals and ethics than others. And what I'm about to read here is the 1907 law. Okay. An act to prevent procreation of confirmed criminals, idiots, imbeciles, and rapists, providing that superintendents and boards of managers of institutions where such persons are confined shall have the authority and are empowered to appoint a committee of experts consisting of two physicians to examine into the men- mental condition of such inmates. Preamble. Whereas heredita- heredity plays a most important part in the transmission of crime, idiocy and imbecility penal institutions, surgical operations. Therefore, be it enacted by the General Assembly of the state of Indiana that on and after the passage of this act, it shall be compulsory for each and every institution in the state entrusted with the care of confirmed criminals, idiots, rapists, and imbeciles to appoint upon its staff, in addition to regular institution physician, two skilled surgeons of recognized ability whose duty it shall be in conjunction with the chief physician of the institution to examine the mental and physical condition of such inmates as are recommended by the institutional physician and board of managers. If in the judgment of this committee of experts and the board of managers, procreation is inadvisable and there is no probability of improvement of mental condition of the inmate, it shall be lawful for the surgeons to perform such operation for the prevention of procreation as shall be decided safest and most effective. And that's very telling in and of itself, isn't it, gentlemen? I mean, you look at that. This is taking advantage of people that have a clear mental illness or disability and just deciding arbitrarily this board of managers, this group of people gets to decide, is this person fit to procreate or not? Uh, Unreal. And I I guess I would have to ask, Wayne, this was on your side of the research. How much do you feel this has crept up into the modern penal system? I mean, we're we're aware that in the United States, the entire penal system is now corporatized for profit. And not only is it corporatized for profit, it seems to be extremely heavily involved with certain races that make up a fraction of the uh, overall population. Right. And, uh, I would tend to say that, uh, yeah, this stuff's still going on today. It's just not as publicly acknowledged. They use more covert means of doing this kind of stuff. They might not use, like necessarily say, uh, have a surgeon on staff at like a mental facility or something to uh, do these kind of operations, but they use other means to make people uh, unable to reproduce, mostly chemical means at this point. Well, I mean, on the face of it, you could surmise that, I mean, there used to be all this hoopla about people being jailed for marijuana in places like Texas when other places had gone to legalize it. So, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to understand that if a person was put in jail for something like marijuana, guess what? They're not creating a family as long as they're behind bars. So even just the simple act of incarcerating someone would have the desired effect of pushing a possible beginning of a family up into later years, which was one of the main agendas from the get-go. Precisely. All right, man, that brings us to the top of the first hour for episode 134. There is a ton of research we couldn't touch with a 10-foot pole in hour two. I will remind everybody that the full show is posted for members for basically the cost of a cup of coffee at crow777radio.com. Hope to see you all there. Jason, anything you want to add before we call it? 
I hope more and more people are realizing just how much the censorship is clamping down on us. It's not a joke when we say we can't put this in hour one. People are literally, not just us, being attacked and shut down over discussing certain kinds of information. And of course, it's the kind of information that you find us dealing with week after week. What's the most upsetting about it is is we're not trying to harm anyone. We're doing research and we're even stating or citing in most cases where we did our research, inviting people to go out and look. So in essence, if we get shut down for talking about a thing, it's almost like they've taken a book off the library shelf because basically we're researching this stuff. But at the end of the day, join us all in the free speech zone over at crow777radio.com. That will bring hour one of episode 134 to a close. Hope to see you all over at the place where we can actually speak. There it is, man. Cheers.